You're listening to the Imperfect Pursuit Podcast, episode number 20. Today's guest interview is so good. I got to interview Riz McDonald from Found Legal. I was looking forward to interviewing Riz for quite some time and let me say this conversation did not disappoint. Riz is the founder of Found Legal and that is found spelt with two Ds. Riz is a lawyer with over 16 years of experience. She's passionate about all things creative and that's what led her to start Found. She discovered that there were a huge number of amazing designers, creatives, and fellow entrepreneurs out there who had fantastic ideas and business models, but had no access to the legal ins and outs that are imperative to running a fully legitimate, successful, and protected company. She knows from experience how difficult and time-consuming it can be to build a business from the ground up, and making sure that you're doing everything the right way can be really daunting. Riz started Found as a way to make all of that boring, scary, overwhelming, and legal stuff both accessible and affordable to entrepreneurs, creatives, and designers so that they can have the best shot possible of creating a legal and lucrative brand and business that they can share with the world. It is amazing how much we cram into our one-hour interview. And this interview is definitely one of my favorite, most valuable guest interviews that I've had with a guest on the podcast. I was honestly taking notes the whole time. I learned so much in this episode and I know you guys will too. We talk about mistakes that creative entrepreneurs often make when it comes to the legal side of their business, steps that people can take to get legally legit. Riz shares some industry-specific advice, particularly for wedding pros, whether deposits can be refunded. We talk about trademarking intellectual property and the differences between copywriting and trademarking, which is a really interesting conversation. Whether your website needs website terms and conditions and a privacy policy. Honestly, we cover so much ground in this conversation and it is absolutely packed with value. So that is enough rambling from me. You guys may even want to get a notebook out and take notes just like I did because there is so much stuff that you guys are going to learn from this conversation. So without further ado, let's jump into this awesome conversation with Riz from Found Legal. Hey, welcome to the Imperfect Pursuit Podcast. My name is Sarah Luthi and I love all things marketing, money, mindset and helping creative entrepreneurs pursue their purpose. Nothing in life or business is perfect, but I believe in the power of taking imperfect action and showing up with grace, authenticity, and intentionality. So if you're ready to imperfectly pursue your biggest goals and build a life and business you love, there is a place for you here. Hey Riz, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you. Oh, thank you, Sarah. I'm delighted to be here. I'm, yeah, I've been looking forward to interviewing you for a little while now. I'm so glad that uh, we're here and I'm just looking forward to having a conversation around the legal stuff, which can feel a little bit scary for a lot of creatives in particular. So looking forward to picking your brains and just hearing from someone who actually understands the legal world. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I will do my best. So to kick us off, do you just want to share some of your story, how you got started with um, law and how you started your business? Absolutely. Um, So in terms of starting with law, I I worked at this, I was an office junior in a law firm and I met these amazing, amazing lawyers and um, female lawyers and I'd not had a role model, a female role model to look up to and I was fascinated and full of admiration for them and that kind of set me on the path to wanting to be a lawyer 
and I've been a lawyer now for, oh my goodness, more than over 16 years now. <laughs> and, um, and I have, I guess I've loved the, the parts I've loved the most is the helping, the, the, um, uh, being proactive and directing, um, how those contracts work if that mm. makes sense, and educating people around that. Um, I worked in private practice for a long time, and then I worked um, in-house, which basically working for other companies as their own lawyer, you know, their exclusive lawyers, shall we say. And so my clients were all around me, and I, I, and I loved doing that too. But I always felt like I was a bit of a square peg in a round hole uh, mm. in terms of my personality and my approach to two things. And um, after having two children, um, I felt that I needed something more flexible, shall we say. Um, so I guess that's how Find, Find started for two reasons. One was um, very selfish reasons. I wanted flexibility. Um, and I wanted to, um, when I say flexibility, I mean, you know, not the nine till two or the nine to five or anything, but more the, hey, I can stop my work at this yeah. You know, anytime I want to go and see my child's assembly or their sports day or something, that kind of flexibility to, you know, um, fit the work around my life rather than my life around the work kind of thing. Mm. And, um, and the other reason was I saw a gap in the market for creatives. Um, there, there didn't seem to be a level playing field or uh, a place where creatives could go and be protected uh, from mm. a legal perspective. And um, and I, I feel really strongly uh, and and very passionately about educating others and not just you know being there when things go wrong, but I want to be there before that and educate them and give them the tools to be fully informed. So yeah, that's how Find kind of came about. Yeah, I love that, and you're so right. There's just not really a space, or there wasn't a space for law or legal for creatives and I think yeah the word legal and the word creatives often don't go hand in hand (laughs) but I love that you've kind of stepped into that space and and just started normalizing that conversation so when did you start found legal I started it in September 2019 so yeah yeah. still relatively recent Uh, yeah yeah and and we'll obviously get to this toward the end but you have a digital shop where you sell amazing templates I've bought quite a few of your templates and then you have a team as well and you do some custom work too yes yes yeah so good all righty well let's dive into some of these questions I'd love to know if there are any mistakes that you see creative entrepreneurs making when it comes to the legal side of their business I'm sure there are heaps but we'd just love to know some of the the big mistakes that you often see happening I think um firstly the couple of things and it's kind of a combination of um sort of practicals and legals i guess because it has a legal impact and that is they don't take themselves seriously enough sometimes they they think that it's a small business it's a side hustle they don't really need a contract or the client's so lovely they don't you know a handshake will do you know or they're not big enough yet you know to have contracts in place so they so the mistake they tend to make is not having a contract in the first place Yes. And it's only when a problem occurs that they think, oh, we need a contract. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, by then, they've kind of been burnt and sometimes very badly. Um, and so th- then they come to me as well to try and see, well, can we 
be proactive going forwards um, yeah. and, and, and learning lessons the hard way. So it's um, one of the things they don't do is value, you know, what they do by having the right contract in place to protect them. And, and, and the other thing that they don't do um, is uh, they think small rather than think big. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, for me, it's not that they have to be huge uh, as a business, but to think big, meaning think about the ownership you have over your assets. Your IP is mm-hmm. one of the biggest assets a small business owns. Yeah. So it should be protected. So when you create content, you definitely want a contract that clearly sets out who owns that content that you create. Do you really want to... Um, you know, uh, give it away without having certain rights around it. So that's another thing um, that I see a lot of businesses don't appreciate is their intellectual property as well. Yeah, I'm really excited to have that conversation around IP. Um, It's one of the questions later on in the episode, so we'll circle back to that one. But um, really love your thoughts there. A lot of business owners, particularly creatives, as you say, they they think small and they don't take their business seriously enough. They think mm, like that won't ever happen to me. You only hear of that happening to businesses in America, these horror stories happening to small business. But like at the end of the day, we're like we're all at risk of of you know being liable for certain things. So we need to make sure that we're protected. Um, so Absolutely. what is the first thing that people need to do to get legally legit okay so there's a couple of things to do um you know first of all decide on what kind of business structure you want um whether that's a sole trader then you want to register for an abn if you want to be a company register the company um but also have insurance in place so there's a combination of practical things as well as legal things Mm -hmm. the other thing is you know um it's 2021 pretty much every person uh on the planet has a website of some description or operate online in some way, shape or form, even if it's just, you know, their window to the world, so to speak. So make sure you have the right website terms and conditions, a privacy policy. If you're taking any kind of personal information, I bet you have a contact form on your website mm-hmm. where you take somebody's personal information, you know, so you should have a privacy policy. If you want to build up your email database, highly recommend that by the way, then you need to make sure you have the right consent so you can market to them. So those are kind of the basic, basic things you need to do on your website. Um, The other thing is with having website terms and conditions, I I would imagine that you would want to write blog articles and post them to your website. Mm -hmm. I would imagine that you want to post um, images of your beautiful content or examples of your work. Um, your website terms and conditions can potentially protect you by setting out the rules of engagement on your website and what they can and cannot do with the content and letting people know that that content is not for commercialization, is for personal use only, and that you're the owner of that content. So there's limiting your liability as well on your website. So if you provide any kind of advice, making it clear it's general only. You know, so those are the kind of things you need to be thinking about right from the get-go. And obviously, we touched upon having a contract. So if you provide services, um, you know, you should have a contract in place as well. Because um, if you don't have a clear contract, then there's scope creep can happen, um, no clarity around payment terms, what happens if they don't pay you, how do you deal with all of that? 
So I would say at a minimum, website terms and conditions, a privacy policy, uh, maybe a disclaimer that can be incorporated into the website T's and T's as well as a standalone a contract. Mm -hmm. And whether you're a sole trader or not, having the right insurance in place is super, super important um, as well. Yeah, really good advice there. And I, I think a lot of people turn a blind eye to the privacy policy and website terms and conditions. But as you say, if you have a contact form, you need to have a privacy policy. You need to tell people what you'll be doing with that information. Absolutely. I think there's a, yeah, and I think there's a little bit of a misconception around website T's and C's. I think uh, I've heard some of my coaching clients refer to those as their own contracts. Like they think, oh, the terms and conditions are my, um, like my business terms and conditions. And I've said, no, like they're completely different. So can you maybe just um, explain some of the differences there? Yeah, absolutely. So typically website terms and conditions um, are for the website. Um, unless you have services on your website that are um, uh, not custom, if you see what I mean, you, you sell a, a digital product um, and you've provided the description, the details, the pricing, etc., and they go and buy it and your website terms and conditions deal with that product as well. Okay. Mm -hmm whether there's any kind of refund policy, whether there's, um, you know, uh, any kind of uh, language around the use of that product when it's being purchased or that service, shall we say, if it's, um, you know, if you're offering any particular service as well. But to be honest, if you're a service provider and you're providing one-on-one -on -one services, your website T's and C's are not going to cover that. How can it? Mm. Because each client um, will be unique. And what you yeah. offer them and the timing, uh, uh, the timeframes that you work towards with them for that particular job is going to be quite unique. Um, and that can't be addressed through website T's and C's. They're typically used just for your website, the content on your website. And if you're a business that also offers, you know, e-commerce type services through digital products, for example, or physical products, then website T's and C's can be adapted to accommodate that because it's, they're always going to remain the same. But if you're offering one-on-one -on -one services, then your website T's and C's will not um, cover you for that. Yeah. No, I'm glad we just kind of clarified the differences there because I think sometimes people assume it's the same thing as your um, like your client contract. But yeah, No, yes. it's, it's not. It's completely different. And, and to, the other thing from a practical perspective, and I'm all about practicalities as well, is, you know, Google um, likes seeing websites with website T's and C's and privacy policies. I think, in fact, um, I think Facebook insists on it. You know, if you want a business page, um, it'll want your privacy policy. And I believe most, if not all, banks require it as well if you plan to sell on your website. Interesting. Yeah, no, it's definitely um, something people need to take seriously, as you say. It also legitimizes you if you think about it. If somebody comes across your website and you have zero you know, details about who you are, which your website T's and C's enables, uh, and, and no details around what you're going to do by when they hand over their email address and they don't have any of that, they're unlikely to engage with you. Yeah, hmm. absolutely. So obviously you have a digital contract template shop, which I 
just love. I'm obsessed with it. <laughs> it's so good. Um, and you sell um, like privacy policies and website T's and C's as well. So there are some really um, good resus- resources on there for both uh, client contracts and then some of those, I guess, quote unquote, smaller <laughs> contracts that are still important. Um, but what point? at what point would you recommend people do get their contracts, whether that's a template they've purchased or they've written up their own contract, at what point would they suggest they do get it checked by a local solicitor? Um, I would uh, highly recommend they get it checked as soon as possible to make sure all the key terms are there and protect them. So making sure, you know, that their payment terms are clear. What does that look like? I always highly recommend if you're working on a project, um, and uh, regardless of the size of the project, um, you should take at least an initial deposit and set up milestone payment structures. But if that's not identified in your contract, how can you enforce that or insist on that? Um, so you, I've had scenarios where clients have um, you know, received the initial deposit, which was quite minimal compared to the full size of the project because of the amount they were charging. And then they didn't put in milestone payments uh, mm-hmm. until they'd completed the work. Then the final balance was paid and they lost out because they didn't have language in the agreement to how that would be managed, that final payment would be managed. And then they're left chasing the client, which takes up a lot of energy and it's stressful as well when they're also trying to run their business. So um, having the contract checked as soon as possible to make make sure your payment terms are very clear, make sure, you know, uh, scope creep is real, you know? And so you wanna be very clear with the client, these are the services I'm providing. If you want anything beyond that, then we need to have another conversation and there'll be another invoice, you know? So you need to set the expectations both in that contract and making sure, you know, if you, uh, if something goes wrong, if the client doesn't do what they're supposed to do as part of the arrangement, do you have the ability to terminate? You know, you need to make sure you've got termination, clear termination rights and clear language around who owns the intellectual property that's generated as a result of that agreement. So I would highly recommend if you do have a contract, um, and especially if you have cobbled it together, um, not, you know, going to give you a hard time, no, not too much, um, then make sure you get it checked out uh, yeah, for sure. It's definitely important Yeah, for sure. So you've, you've kind of hinted at an example already in terms of payments, but I'm just interested to know, like, what are some possible scenarios of something going wrong because someone's contract didn't hold up? Well, you might even have like yeah, some stories. Yeah. So one um, one example I can give you is, um, and this relates to intellectual property, where um, I had a client who made and still makes amazing, amazing designs, patterns, and um, they entered into a contract, um, but they didn't make it clear what that design could be used for, mm-hmm. and so. The, the expectation on their part was it would be used for one thing. Let's just, for an example, let's use um, bed linen. Mm-hmm. Um, and because they did not make that clear, uh, the, the fee structure was for bed linen, say the, the royalties being paid. Mm-hmm. Um, but the client then went and used it on other things. And our my client was unable to receive royalties for those other mm-hmm. things. I hadn't factored that price into the scope of what she put together. 
Um, And that was a hard lesson for her to learn. Um, Mm. So it's really important, you know, that if if you uh, don't have clear language around what can and cannot be done with your intellectual property, then you can potentially lose money. And Mm. that's what happened to her. She lost money because it wasn't clear uh, what the client could use um, that content on without, you know, and, and what the fee structure would be then in re- in relation to that. So if she had made it clear that, you know, you can only use this for bed linen as an example, and should you require to use it on anything else, then we need to discuss that further and update the agreement to reflect that, um, including the, the fees. Uh, around that so she so we've since obviously updated her contract so now it's very clear the language is very clear and she's not experienced that issue again uh, thankfully Um, so that's one example another example is um, you know where like I said um, you know the the issue that happens is uh, for example scope creep so when you're not clear in your agreement around the services you're going to provide and the client comes to you or oh, just one little change, can I have this? Can I have that? And your the language in your agreement is not clear. So for example, mm-hmm. let's just say, you know, you provide um, 10 images and um, you will provide certain backup copies of those images and um, and that's it if you don't say that in your agreement it's not clear enough then the expectation from the client will be that there's more that they can ask from you Um, and that's happened to some clients where they've ended up doing work beyond the scope of what they thought they'd agreed because it wasn't clear in the contract Mm -hmm. and that happens a lot as well Um, and then they they feel awkward sometimes having those conversations because they're hard conversation to have as well you know so I always say you know to my clients it's the contract is very very important but don't use it as a band-aid use it as a safety net so your onboarding process with your client and your ongoing relationship with your client uh, and how you communicate with your client is as equally important as the contract is so anything that's important in the contract should be communicated to the client as part of your ongoing relationship with that client. So your initial consultation should be set in the first uh, step in the boundary setting and the setting of expectations, you know, and then the follow up emails, the request for, you know, a deposit, the request for um, feedback or the request for the additional payments, they all set those boundaries and expectations. So when your client comes back to you and says, hey, can I have 30 pictures instead of the 10? You say, of course I can. I'll send you the invoice for the additional amount. It's a different conversation straight away mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. yeah. No, that's really good. Um, yeah, really good feedback there. And I think the thing with contracts, and you would probably agree with this, is that sometimes we do have to add things to it as we find, you know, certain situations arise. Because um, sometimes when, you're at, you, when you are at the start of your business, you might not really be prepared for certain things that come up but that's the beauty of um especially working with a lawyer um just being comfortable to to add certain clauses to your contract as well as they arise absolutely Um, and the other thing i would recommend from a practical perspective is every six to 12 months check your contracts anyway 
Um, yeah. The other thing I say to my clients is that, you know, every time you experience something bad, shall we say, or have a bad experience with a client, note it down and see whether that means you need to make an adjustment to your system or process or whether you need to make an adjustment to your contract. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and because there's some great lessons to be learned from mistakes as well. I always think of them more as lessons rather than mistakes um, and to track them and, 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 and then make sure that, you know, for your next client, you've learned that lesson and incorporated the changes that you need to incorporate um, to deal with that. Yeah. Oh, that's a really, really good thing to consider. So we have a lot of um, people who work in the wedding industry who listen to the podcast, and I'm sure you've worked with some wedding suppliers as well. We'd just love to know if you have any industry-specific advice, particularly for those in the wedding industry and especially coming out of um, last year with, you know, what we faced with COVID. We'd just love to know if you have any kind of advice to share for our wedding pros. Absolutely. Um, So there's a couple of things, you know, make sure um, you've got language in your contracts around cancellation and rescheduling um, and how the deposit is dealt with uh, if um, uh, the wedding needs to be postponed or rescheduled. You've got clear language as to how that is dealt with. And it's not just from a legal perspective, it's also from a customer experience and reputational perspective as well. You need to make some commercial decisions uh, around that. Um, The other thing is having clear language around um, your intellectual property and what what happens to the imagery, whether you provide uh, raw files, which is very, very rare uh, uh, to provide, and whether if you intend to provide them, whether that incorporates an additional fee, um, making sure that, um, you know, that if you wish to um, uh, expand the scope of your services with the client, that you have those conversations um, and make sure you're able to address them in the contract. But a couple of the most important ones are, I guess, you know, around the rescheduling in particular and cancellations and how you deal with that in your contract. Um, There's also, um, you know, whether you want to offer payment plans uh, and any kind of late fee clauses, they need to be dealt with appropriately in the contract and managed through conversations as well. Um, you know, and whether what happens to the images once you've handed them over, what, what can the client do with those images? What are they allowed to do not or not allowed to do? Make that clear in your contract as well. Um, because you don't know what you don't know and um unless you explain it sometimes to the client they will um happily go and do all sorts of things and with social media being so prevalent as well um you know you need to have some clear language around how you want um your images how they should be managed shall we say if used on socials for example as well um and and just um looking to limit your liability as well if things go wrong, um, I'm just trying to think, you know, with when, with tip, especially with my wedding clients, you know, they have to go to venues and, and making it clear you're not responsible if the venue cancels or um, if there's any issues at the venue, uh, what happens, you know, if there's cement weather, uh, and we've had that as well. Um, so how does that all work? 
you know, making it clear in your terms around that. So you mentioned late fees in what you were just speaking about. And I would just love to know, um, are there legal things surrounding late fees? Like can the business decide what late fee they potentially want to charge the client or are there requirements in terms of how much they're allowed to charge for a late fee? Because I've heard that um, from someone, I can't remember who, but I've heard that you can only charge what you would have lost um, in interest. But then I've also heard you can charge whatever fee you want if the client pays late. So can you maybe clear that up for us? You can charge a late fee, but it can't be exorbitant. You're not making a, yes. it's not there for making a profit. Okay. Um, you've got to, uh, your contract, first of all, you can't, if your contract doesn't say you can charge for late fees, then you can't you charge. You yes. can't. <laughs> Um, but when you do charge, um, it's it's got to be reasonable, mm-hmm. you know. So uh, say, uh, look, this is not set in stone, but you can't charge a thousand dollar late fee, you know, yes. <laughs> when, when the invoice is a thousand dollars. You charge yeah. a percentage of uh, interest, um, and 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 it can be anything between one point five, two point five percent, you know. Um, uh, it's, it's important, though, um, that you don't go overboard and expect uh, yeah. that you can make a profit. It's not about making a profit. Um, yes. You no. Know? So the short answer is, yes, you can charge interest on unpaid invoices um, as long as it's in your contract that allows you to do that. Um, mm-hmm. And it's generally calculated on an annual basis, but it's normally broken down kind of month, month by month basis. So small businesses do that, big businesses do that. Um, But you do need to take into consideration, you know, like I said, whether your terms and conditions cover that um, and the interest is due on a payment that's overdue um, and they're they're expecting that to happen. Um, uh, And like I said, I use the word, the language reasonable and it has to be fair and reasonable. can't just arbitrarily charge high interest rates um, and a court would not allow that either Mm. as well so that's when you'll get into trouble if it's not fair and reasonable it's too high Um, and but from a legal perspective as long as it's in your contract you can certainly charge it yes no I'm really glad we cleared that up (laughs) yeah it's an interesting conversation because yeah I've heard of um yeah, some, I've heard some interesting <laughs> late fee payments before. Um, so I just wanted to clear that up with you. So that's interesting. Um, quick question, because I've heard um, conflicting opinions around this as well. Can deposits always be non-refundable if you call it a non-refundable deposit? And or is there a difference between a deposit and, let's say, a retainer or a booking fee? Well, it's a mixed bag. It depends on how you've defined it as well in the contract. Um, but you, again, it goes to that whole, um, if your contract um, is clear, uh, a non-refundable deposit t- typically is uh, where a fixed fee is paid for services being provided. Okay. Mm-hmm. And generally, you set out in the contract that it's not unrefundable if they decide to cancel the contract. So, for example, um, as a photography business, you know, you um, uh, you could charge, say, $4,000 for your services and request, say, let's say, for argument's sake, $800 deposit. 
Mm-hmm. And the fee arrangement is there to protect the business from a change of mind, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an extra layer of protection against, you know, a sudden cancellation. But it's also important to remember, you know, that a non-refundable deposit should be reasonable and protect legitimate business interests. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- that it's it, it needs to be very clear, and very fair and reasonable. And it the client needs to be aware of it before they sign the contract. Okay. Yeah. So it's important how you deal with it. And it's not supposed to be there to penalize the client uh, as well. Mm. Okay. Um, because it could be seen as um, under consumer law, you know, to be uh, an unfair term under your contract as well, if it's not fair and reasonable and it's not been made clear before the client mm-hmm. signs a contract. Um, and it could be seen to be misleading or deceptive, uh, like I said, um, if they're not aware of it uh, before yeah. they enter into it. So remember how I said earlier, you know, your contracts are super important, treat it as a safety net, not as a band-aid, but it's also important to have clear communication, setting expectations and boundaries. Well, those are the kind of things, you know, if you have a non refundable deposit clause in your agreement you need to make that clear as part of the well this is how we work this is how we operate Mm -hmm. and it's also set out in our contract so you're doing the right thing by doing all of that yeah so um so the key takeaway from my perspective would be that non-refundable deposits can be used but they've got to be properly disclosed before they sign the contract and the total amount that you take must be reflective of a legitimate business interest and it's not there to penalize and it can't be significantly disproportionate to the actual business cost and time incurred as well yeah you know so um just be mindful of those things Mm. yeah it's an interesting conversation because there's definitely not a one-size-fits-all as you say and like yeah, there are different costs and time involved for different services, right? So yeah. it is something that does need to be considered on a, you know, on the specific business. And I think that's why it is really, really important to seek legal advice um, just to make sure that your terms are fair, um, as you've said, Riz, and yeah. just ensuring everything is really, really clear in the contract as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, would love to have a conversation around intellectual property. It's something that I think a lot of people don't know much about at all, including myself. So we'd just love to know, um, I mean, firstly, can you just explain what intellectual property is um, and why is it so important for people to make sure that they're, um, you know, legally protecting their IP? Absolutely. So intellectual property is kind of... um, it's a it covers a broad banner of things and yeah. i will talk i guess i think trademarks uh, and copyright in it, at a high level is it's a huge subject in its own right but yeah. um you know when you when bit small and again this goes back to small businesses thinking small rather than thinking big you know um your intellectual property is one of the biggest assets of your business Um, So, for example, your brand name, your business name, when you register the name, um, it does not give you exclusive rights to that name. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, in order to get exclusive rights to it, you need to register it as a trademark um, so that you have exclusive use for to that name in your business. So if you're a photography business and you um, register a trademark 
for your photography business, then another photographer can't register that same name, if that makes sense, okay? And that's the only way you can then protect that is through a trademark that gives you the exclusive rights. Now, there's the other form of intellectual property is copyright. So that in Australia, you don't have to register for copyright. It automatically exists the moment you create something. Uh, so for example, if you create templates, um, if you create blog articles that are original, if you uh, take pictures, your pictures, mm -hmm. they're all protected by copyright. Mm -hmm. um, so there's different types, um, like I said, of intellectual property, and you can protect it in different ways as well. So your copyright, you can protect through um, having website terms and conditions. So if anyone comes to your website and you have content on there, you have images on there, uh, you sell digital products on there, um, you can protect it through a combination of the website terms and conditions, put a warning and make sure there's um, a disclaimer that you own the IP in that content uh, on any, um, you know, digital downloads as well. Um, so you can protect it that way. And with, um, with regards to engaging one-on-one -on -one with your clients, your contract needs to have language in there around IP ownership. What is it that you retain ownership over? And what is it that you might assign ownership to the other person? And it may be you assign them nothing, but you might give them a license to use your content uh, or your images. So for example, you know, with photography, you might give them a license to use the photography, but for specific things for their personal use for example um it might not be for you know uh to go and commercialize those images if that was the case you might charge them a different fee a higher fee you know so your contract needs to be really clear around um what you're going to do with your uh content your intellectual property in your contract and what rights you're giving them to to the use of that um content and if you also think about it if you protect um, your IP through say a combination of registering and trademark for your business name making sure all your contracts have the right clauses to protect you as well as your website T's and C's etc if one day you want to sell your business then those things have value they yeah. make up the value of your business and the person then buying it they're buying not just you know, that goodwill, etc. They're buying that intellectual property as part of the assets of the business as yeah. well. Um, so it's really important that people understand that. So for example, domain names are first come first served. So are Instagram handles, you, you will see some Instagram handles are exactly the same. The only difference is a hyphen or the word the in front of it or something. Yes. So, yeah. you know, they're first come first served. It's, um, that's why it's important to register your trademark uh, for that. And, and just to be clear, even with trademarks, there's 45 different classes of goods and services. You cannot register for all of them because you don't operate in all of those different classes of goods and services. So you need to protect it for the specific class of goods and services that apply to your business um, and then protect it once you have that registration. So like I said before, if you registered a business name, uh, as a trademark um, for your photography business, then another photographer can't, you know, use that name. And um, and think of something unique and not generic because you might get knocked back for yeah. a trademark application. But that's a whole different, yeah. you know, conversation mm. as well. 
No, it's so interesting. I don't think many people realise that registering their business name with, I mean, in Australia, the most common one is ASIC. Is that right? So, as, um, yeah, you use but ASIC that's different yeah, to, to trademarking. Correct. So with trademarking, yeah. you go through IP Australia to register a trademark. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just to give me some examples of trademarks, you know, um, think of the Apple logo. That's a registered yeah. trademark. Think of Coca-Cola's secret recipe. That's um, IP of Coca-Cola. Um, if you think of the Tiffany color, that particular shade, every time I see that color, I know it's Tiffany. Yeah. They've registered that as a trademark. Coco, wow. Coco Chanel have registered their scent as a trademark. So you can register certain things as trademarks um, and there is a process involved. Um, but typically most businesses, uh, especially uh, smaller businesses, tend to register their business name as a trademark if they're savvy enough to do so uh, and they have big plans for that and grow that. I mean, yeah. if you think about it, when you have a registered trademark, think of um, local businesses like Jim's Mowing, okay? Yeah. It's a franchise. They're able to license their trademark to their franchisees to use in their business, but it's a license only as part yeah. of their terms and conditions uh, for them to keep growing and expanding their empire. Yeah. So, um, so with yeah. trademarking, um, I'm glad you mentioned IP Australia. We'll link that in the show notes if anyone wants to just check that out. But um, when you trademark something, is that like a global trademark? No, it's right. not. It's So you would apply for your trademark in Australia. Um, mm -hmm. And once you're approved and you have a registered trademark, you can also um, apply to other countries um, as well through IP Australia, or you can hire obviously a lawyer to help you as well to get yeah. protection in other countries. Um, so, but yes, the registration process with IP Australia, the init that initial process is for Australia only. Yes. Yeah. And I guess if you're like a local shop, say you have a little retail jewelry shop and you, you want to stay small and you're just based in, you know, Australia, then obviously you probably would only need to trademark that for Australia. But if you're selling, and that would be one of my next questions is trademarking, say like a course name. So um, I'm thinking of big examples like Amy Porterfield's yeah. Digital Course Academy. Like I assume, I really assume that she would have trademarked that. Yeah. So if you're kind of going global, then I would imagine that's when you would consider, um, you know, ensuring you're protected. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So if you do plan to go global, it should be part of your initial strategy. I always say to my clients, you know, when they're thinking about registering a trademark, it's really, really important that you think of your business strategy. What are your intentions around your brand? How do you see it growing? In what areas do you see it growing? Because you can't just cherry pick a class um, mm. of goods or services that you may, maybe in about three or four years' time, operate in. You know, it's, you have to be very intentional. You have to, um, you know, register for the class of goods and services that you intend to operate in. And, um, and, and in terms of your global strategy, so you gave a great example, if you plan to do courses and those courses are going to be available, um, you know, in the US market, you want to go into the US market, then you need to think about maybe not just protecting your trademark in Australia, but also in the US as well. Yeah, because that's the thing, like one of the big dogs 
could come along, they may not have even seen, you know, your course, but they might use that name and you can't really do anything about it. And obviously they're going to most likely have a lot more traction than you will. And then ultimately you probably just have to change the name of your course. So um, it's definitely good to consider that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I'm really curious about this question. I'm sure many entrepreneurs at one point or another um, will have come across another website that they can tell has been closely replicated from their own website. So what rights do people have when it comes to the content on their website, whether that's, um, I mean, images is, you know, the main example, but I'm thinking more like copywriting. Um, You know, what are their rights there? How can they potentially prove who copied who and what can they do in that situation when they have discovered that, okay, I can tell someone has copied a lot yeah. of my, my content? Yeah. So there's a couple of things. Um, remember, we talked about website terms and conditions. Yeah. So your website terms and conditions will make it clear what people can and cannot do with the content they find on your website. So you can protect things like blog posts, articles, mm-hmm. visual content like photos, graphics, illustrations. Uh, even audio potentially as well, like podcasts or music or um, videos as well. Mm-hmm. And they'll protect copyright. The Copyright Act can't speak. <laughs> the Copyright <laughs> Act will protect, um, you know, substantial parts of each of that work. Um, the thing is, though, um, you know, that doesn't prevent a, a copycat. Mm-hmm. Um, so what can you do? You can take legal action. You can, what you can do is, there's a couple of things you can do. You can take the first step may be to reach out to them, you know, mm-hmm. and talk to them, whether that's via email in, in some form of writing uh, yeah. and let them know, you know, uh, that it's your copyright and can they stop. And sometimes, you know, they might not have even been aware that they've done something wrong yeah. and it can be easily resolved with having that open communication. Um, and if they don't take down the material, then the next step would be to, you know, um, contacting a lawyer and sending a cease and desist, which basically, mm-hmm. you know, will set out the terms and, and clarify why you own the, the, the copyright and the content they've taken and they're infringing your copyright and that yeah. you potentially will be, um, you know, claiming compensation for that if they don't stop. Mm-hmm. Um, and look, it's often impractical and costly to seek legal help every time. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, you know, you can take some measures to inform visitors. And that's why I meant about, you know, um, having your website. But the other thing you can do is having a copyright notice on your website as well. Um, the consequence of infringing your copyright in your website, T's and C's. You know, you can watermark any images, even subtly. I know it sometimes can take away from the you know, the, how the image is viewed, but you can maybe put some subtle watermarking in. You can prevent some content from being downloaded as well. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it's, um, you can only do what you can do uh, from yeah. a practical perspective. None of us have deep pockets as a small business. Yeah. Um, it's not always possible to pursue um every single instance of um, a breach of copyright. So you can put in, like I said, these protective measures as much as possible. You can consult with a lawyer, even if it's just to sort of get an idea of costs and what it would entail. So you can make an informed decision as to whether you do wish to pursue something or not, whether it's worthwhile pursuing something or not. Um, But at the end of the day, you know, copycats will never be, they can't be you. You're an individual. What you produce is very unique to you. 
and you'll always be one step ahead of people who mm -hmm. don't have their own original ideas yeah, um you'll sure. always be one step ahead so um yeah so from uh, a a legal perspective, you can, you know, engage the service as a lawyer and send a cease and desist. But I always say, look, first try and resolve the matter yourselves if you can yeah. by, you know, making the request, explaining to them it's your copyright. Please take it down um, and see where that gets you first. But yeah. never one thing I will say is don't make it a public yeah. argument. Don't <laughs> post on the content. Don't say anything mm. uh, negative. You could get and land yourself into trouble. Um, yes. So a cool, calm head is required. Um, yes. Approach them privately um, and see what you can do. And like I said, sometimes, you know, genuinely, people don't know half the time. They can't remember where they sourced content because there's so much content out there. Yeah, They might have gotten it from another third-party source uh, and didn't even know. Um, yeah. But that doesn't mean to say that shouldn't prevent you from reaching out. But just a cool, calm head is important. Yeah, I, I love your advice there because it, it's happened to me before. And, um, and and if anyone's listening and if it happens to you in the future, I just definitely resonate what um, you said, Riz. Just if even if it means you need to give it a few days yes. <laughs> to cool down and just, you know, not be so emotional about it um, and not, yeah. not send that email from an emotional Place. absolutely yeah. absolutely and like i said you can do your best to protect yourself with having a copyright notice your website mm. t's and c's you know watermarking images etc so yeah. there are some practical steps you can take as well yeah so i feel like i'm just really interested by this trademarking concept and copyright and all of that so let's say um a business sells digital product and they're selling it to people um, in other countries, not just Australia. Uh, obviously, we're protected by the Copyright Act in Australia, but what are their rights in terms of other people who aren't in Australia potentially replicating that resource or or whatnot? Um, so, again, what we just talked about in terms of um, so content itself that's protected by copyright, um, you would need to uh, take the same steps, really, and reach out to that person and then seek legal advice as to how you if that doesn't work what can you do um, to stop that from happening and and whether a cease and desist needs to be sent and and how to manage that process then and like i said it can be expensive but it depends on um i think let me just correct myself there it's not so much depends on but it's being informed. So reach out to the lawyer, talk to them about what steps can you take? What does that look like? What are the costs involved? And whether then, you know, you weigh up what can you do in that scenario and approach that. I've, I've helped clients previously uh, as well, where we've engaged um, an agent on our behalf to approach um, the infringer in another country um, and I won't say it's an inexpensive process, um, yeah. but in this case, it was worthwhile because of the level of um, uh, infringement um, and they profited from that infringement. Mm, yeah. um, but we were able to negotiate a favorable outcome. But like I said, it's not an inexpensive exercise. No. So are there disclaimers or certain things that you would recommend people would include at the top of that absolutely potential. so any yeah. dig any digital content that's downloadable you should have a copyright notice in there you should have mm -hmm. 
you know, uh, reaffirm your license terms, i.e. it's a license to use for your you know, personal use only not to be shared. You can put in certain disclaimers in as well as your website T's and C's and the copyright notice on your website as well. Yeah. You know, you can do all those things as much as possible so they can't, you know, claim ignorance, shall yes. we say, yeah. you know. And um, so those are the kind of practical things you can do as well. Look, there's no legal requirement for you to have a copyright notice on your website. So that's that little C in a circle, yeah. you know, the year, your company or business name that you're trading under. Uh, that's what I mean by the little copyright notice. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no legal requirement on that, but it's it's uh, at least it's there to say, hey, look at me. I'm this is copyright. This everything yes. on this website's my copyright. Mm-hmm. You know, you're putting them on notice more than anything. And hopefully yeah. it'll give them pause and, and do the same with your digital content and make sure your terms and conditions on your website, if you sell digital products, are very clear around um, what, you know, what they can and cannot do with the content. Add in any copyright notices into the content. So on your PDF, most of the time it's PDF format, you know, in the footer, have the copyright notice and maybe on the front, you know, and in the email, you know, reaffirming that it's your copyright and it's only for personal use only. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's really, really good advice. I'm glad we touched on that. So that brings us to your contract shop, as we've mentioned, you have some amazing resources and templates available. So do you want to tell us about this? And I'd also love to just know, because I do, like, we do have a lot of listeners who aren't from Australia. Do your templates, um, only really work for Australian businesses if you just want to tell us about your shop sure um so basically like I said at the beginning you know uh my contracts are for creatives and Mm -hmm. I wanted to start find because um I wanted to provide affordable services so that's resulted in my template shop and so the templates are essentially custom for each industry. So if you buy the photographer agreement, it is custom for photographers. If you buy the, you know, the um, coaching agreement, it's custom for coaching services and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. So it's the equivalent of buying of working one-on-one with a lawyer. Um, that's how custom they are. Um, and you then just fill in the blanks that are related to you know, the commercials of your deal, you know, the price, you know, the dates, etc., and your details, obviously. Um, and, and so they are for Australia and now New Zealand. We're expanding our range for New Zealand. And whenever I can clone myself, we're going to be expanding further. Um, but at this time, at this point in time, the short answer is they're for Australia and New Zealand. Yeah, um, yeah that's great to know. So, um, yeah, so we are expanding, but it's taking a little bit of time. I want to make sure they're right and, you know, the right people involved. So they're peer reviewed, you know, at least three or four lawyers have been involved in reviewing and double checking everything. And we have drafted them based on my experiences with creatives Mm -hmm. and um, we make updates. So everyone gets a free update of the template they purchased as well. Um, so, uh, and typically we update them either because there's a change in law or because we've got feedback from one of you amazing creatives and we think it's worth adding into the contract. Um, and so that's how we typically tend to update them and, um, they come with a user guide and soon we'll be coming with video guides as well. 
um and um yeah i'm pretty proud of those templates yeah. and um it's it's the next best thing to working with us working with us obviously is more expensive yeah. so these templates are the next best thing yeah no i love it so much and there are so many different templates available i was scrolling through for ages you've got yeah you've got plenty available and i'm glad we cleared that up for um you know the countries that it's currently available for as well because I know there are a lot of um, template shops based in the US and I've seen ads pop up everywhere but I've never purchased them because I'm like oh well the the obviously legal system is different in Australia so it's yeah. really really yeah. great having um, a resource available for Australian businesses so we'll link that in the show notes as well for anyone who wants to check it out so a final question that I would love to know um, I asked this to I ask this question to all of our guests, but we'd just love to know um, if there's a time in your business that you took imperfect action, something I'm really passionate about, and how did this pay off for your business? Well, um, starting fine was an imperfect action, to be honest. Um, I just, I I have two children. I have lots of responsibilities, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And um, I started off with, I think there was about five templates and um uh and and me on my own no no va no assistant no nothing and i was thinking what the hell am i doing (laughs) and um and the the very night before the launch my um template shop part the technology behind that part wasn't working properly (laughs) it was a nightmare but we went ahead and we did it anyway um, the other time I took um, imperfect action was um, growing the team. Yeah. I, I felt like I will never be ready. Will should I do it? I'll not. You know, I'll lose some income because of course you do. But mm. I'm so glad I did because it helped me keep growing. Yes, mm. initially the first month or two it was a bit tight, yeah. but it 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 grew. It scaled, um, mm. and that was. Um, that was a great imperfect action. I wasn't ready. I felt like I wasn't ready, but I was, if that makes sense. I think we women in particular are very hard on ourselves. Mm. And um, we, we have this imposter syndrome telling us we're not good enough and we we can't do this. But I think it's super, super important to, you know, don't wait for something to be perfect. Just do it anyway. And you'll be surprised. And it's a journey I've been on and sometimes I still have those doubts, but I look at what I've achieved and I remind myself of what I've achieved and that's not boasting or being big headed. Mm. It's important that you do, I think, um, do that. And I also made a promise to myself that I would celebrate all my wins and that includes small ones. So when I first started, I, um, when I hit one, each milestone I hit that I, tallied in my head a mental mm-hmm. milestone I would pop open the champagne and I mean champagne not sparkling wine like the real every, stuff the real <laughs> stuff every time and it made me feel so mm-hmm. good I mean not so good the next morning but it made <laughs> me feel so good because it wasn't so much the champagne although that did help it was more the feeling yeah. the feeling that yeah. feeling of celebrating yourself and your achievement and we don't do enough of that yeah, and um, that. yeah so that that honestly People do not wait to, for everything to be perfect. You will be waiting forever. Yeah, oh, I love all of that wisdom you just shared. And that example of the team is a brilliant example. I think, yeah, as you absolutely. say, you never feel ready to make a hire. And often you do need to take 
I guess, a pay cut for a certain period of time because it's, yeah, I mean, it's an investment, right? It's dipping into the the finances. But um, I I believe that if you want to really, really scale, you you just can't do it on your own. So, yeah, I love that example. Absolutely. And look, I can't emphasize enough a combination of systems and processes and automating as much as you can and hiring before you think you need it because if you hire them when you desperately need them then you're too busy to train them or show them the ropes properly Mm -hmm. and then it ends up being a very poor experience of onboarding somebody not just for them but for you as well yeah Yeah. totally that is such good advice man we we um condensed a lot of content into this conversation i'm so so glad i got you on the show thank you so much for coming and sharing your wisdom with us and i definitely learned a lot as well and i'm sure the listeners would have as well so riz thank you so so much um where can people find you and connect with you oh thank firstly sarah thank you so much i love love talking about these things and i love educating and supporting um, amazing, passionate creatives yeah. like yourself. So mm-hmm. thank you so much. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Find Legal with two Ds, and um, also on Facebook, Find Legal, same uh, handle. Mm-hmm. And you can also find me on my website, which is findlegal.com. Great. And we'll pop those links in the show notes too. Um, it's a little bit confusing. It has two Ds. Forever I thought it had two Ns. So whenever I tried <laughs> searching you, I was obviously adding the wrong letter. But um, yes, found with two Ds. And Riz, you're based in Brisbane. Is that yes. right? Yes, yeah, I am. You're a yeah. pretty girl as well. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's really nice to connect with fellow Aussies. Um, and you're just you're just crushing it in the industry. So oh, thank you, thank you. And so your much. your Instagram is beautiful. So can I just say, like, for a law firm, <laughs> you guys are crushing your social media. So uh, you guys need to check it out. <laughs> I love it. I love being different and out, thinking outside the box. Yeah, totally. I was um even when I was looking for a bookkeeper recently, it's funny. I mean, being a creative, I love visual stuff, but um, I was attracted to the bookkeeper who had a really good social media feed, and I think yeah. the same is for you guys as well. Yeah. You're attracting creative people, and and you're obviously doing that well. So, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, no, I I love uh, I love what we do and how we do it, and um, yeah, yeah. Okay, Riz, thank you so, so much for coming on the show. No worries at all. You're absolutely welcome. My pleasure. Hey, thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss future episodes. And while you're at it, if you'd like to leave a five-star rating on iTunes, I would be so grateful. This lets me know what kind of content you're loving so that I can keep creating valuable content for you in the future. It also helps this podcast to find its way to the ears of other creatives just like you. You can check out the show notes for links to everything that was mentioned in this episode or head to my website www.sarahluthie.com for more information and some cheeky freebies. Thanks again for being here friend. I am so grateful for you and I'm cheering you on as you imperfectly pursue your purpose.